Well, actually, I was I was I had conversations with Warner Brothers about Superman and and, and Batman at the time, and um, you know that that instinct to do something more uh, original um, came out, and I was like, well, I do love comic books, and so it was really if they hadn't called, I probably wouldn't have done Unbreakable, but it was a real feeling of coming off of that, thinking about what what Superman and Batman, how would I do it? Um, that it got me in that headspace, and then I was thinking about. Uh, you know, a plane crash originally. It was a plane crash and there was only one survivor um, and he was unharmed. And then I, I forget what movie was coming out or being made at that time of the plane crash. I, it, could, it could have been Castaway. It could have been Castaway. Yeah, and, and so I, I was like, oh, it can't be a plane crash. can you know, the same movie, you know, it, it'll feel like the same kind of movie. Um, at least that's what I thought, which was insecurity. But then I was like, well, trains are really cool and that's a very comic book convention in the East Coast and we take trains a lot and New York, Philly and all that stuff. So I was like, I'll put it on a train and you know, uh, have it that way. So that was the original thing. But the idea of, that we didn't sell the movie on, which I'm, I'm sad in retrospect that we didn't sell the movie on, which was this idea that um, someone survives, a, a, the only survivor of a train wreck doesn't have a scratch on him and that stranger taps him on the shoulder and says, I think you might be a real life comic book hero, um, is, was the idea. And I, when I wrote that down, down like that, that is cool. That's a cool idea. And I remember the funny thing is, being here is so ironic because I, I literally remember this conference table thing where they had the speakerphone. And at that time, I really didn't get involved with how we sold the movies at all. I was just lucky anybody was giving me money to make movies of any kind. So, and they had a speakerphone and they went on and on about how comic books were a fringe market. <laughs> and we can't sell this as a comic book movie. We're going to just sell it as like an eerie eerie movie from the guy who made that other movie. And, and I was like, are you sure? I was like, comic books, are you sure? And they're like, trust us. Welcome to the Carefree Black Nerd Podcast, a conversation about representation in comics and related media. I am your pretty awesome host if I do say so myself <laughs> Rain Coleman and this issue covers Israel 177 now the Israel 177 trilogy this is an American superhero thriller and psychological horror film series this involves the derailment of the fictitious East Rail number 177 train. The films were written, produced, and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, so, for those of you listening and have been listening, you know that I am not great with names. I will butcher them <laughs> like no other. Uh, but I'm pretty confident, 99.7% sure that I got M. Night's name correct. Um, so, before d- diving into this trilogy this series i'm going to take a couple steps back and kind of go into m night now he is an american actor film director producer and screenwriter known for making films with contemporary supernatural plots twist endings pretty much his endings of his movies are really the uh the the, the his signature I know for a while there was the quote-unquote Shyamalan M. Night Shyamalan curse where movies weren't doing well and whatever else, but clearly that's done. That's over and done with because this man has hit it out of the park several times. Um, Yeah, so he was born in 
what I'm going to hope I'm pronouncing correctly, uh, Mahi, M-A-H-E. Um, this is India and raised in Penn Valley, Pennsylvania. Now, uh, for some of you, these may sound familiar, some may not. But his most well-received films um, include the supernatural thriller The Sixth Sense. That was back in 1999. The superhero thriller uh, Unbreakable in 2000. The science fiction thriller Signs of 2002, which I remember that so vividly. I remember seeing that in the theaters. Um, and the historical thriller The Village in 2004. Now, for The Sixth Sense, uh, Shyamalan received a nomination for the Academy excuse me, Academy Award for Best Director. Now, after that, Shyamalan released a series of poorly received but sometimes financially successful movies, which is what I was referring to before about how his movies were, there was quote-unquote that curse surrounding him and his films. Now, some of these movies were um, The Dark Fantasy, Lady in the Water, that's 2006, the eco-thriller, The Happening, that was in 2008, and the film adaptation of The Last Airbender in 2010, which was, ugh, ugh. All right, so we'll act like that never happened. <laughs> now, um, and the, there was a science fiction film, After Earth, and that was in 2013. Now, following the financial failure of After Earth, M. Night's career was revived uh, with the successful release of the found footage horror film, The Visit. That was in 2015, and I have not seen that movie. Um, if you have, let me know in the comments. Use the hashtag CBMPod and, <laughs> and tweet me, Carefree Blurred, and let me know um, how was the movie. Should I even invest in seeing it? Now, and a psychological thriller, which was in 2016, entitled Split, and the next film in the superhero thriller Glass in 2019, which will be the January January 18th of 2019, which is coming up here shortly. Now, this is the third and final chapter of the East Rail 177 trilogy. Whew, okay. Uh, <laughs> so, that's a little bit there. Now, uh, with the East Rail 177 trilogy, it starts with uh, Unbreakable goes to split and it's supposed to end with glass and though though is what m night said is the the trilogy movies themselves um there has been fan theories online about uh, the sixth sense being part of that trilogy or being in that uh in that world though bruce willis did play a character in the sixth sense and then also played a different character in unbreakable there are some pretty interesting theories out there, which makes me think that, you know, loosely it could be somehow tied in. Um, I'm, I'm covering these movies mainly because we know Glass is coming out in a matter of like a week or two. And I'm enjoying going back and revisiting these films. So this will probably, no, this will be the part one of the <laughs> it's East Rail 177, uh, two or three part series. Well, I'm, I was thinking Unbreakable was back in 2000. I was young, but not too young back then. And I don't know if I saw this in theaters. I'm pretty sure I did. Uh, everyone around that time had that bootleg DVDs and VHSs and all. <laughs> but I remember distinctively being in the theater because I think it was the same for The Sixth Sense. And interestingly enough, 
that was around the time. And I can't speak 100% to my mind back then because it was such a long time ago. But I'm thinking The Sixth Sense was one of those movies where I did not know it could be this way, (laughs) for lack of a better term. I do remember watching the movie, thinking it was a bit gloomy emo mm, what what is the word emo- i knew i knew it was something different about it it didn't feel like it was a scary movie because i did not like scary movies back then uh but it did feel different uh it was something i enjoyed and getting to the twist at the end i remember being like oh shit you know and i like stuff like that i like tv shows and movies and shit where you think thinking one thing and then they can pull the you know carpet from under you but doing it in a way that makes sense and that is satisfying to the viewer and the sixth sense was one of those things one of the first times i can remember really being like damn shit can be like this and i i enjoyed it um that being said the the i i've noticed that over the years i've watched a lot of m night Shyamalan movies and a lot of the movies that i watched i did not know were his Uh, It wasn't until maybe the last like 10 years or so that I've actually been paying attention to the credits and movies and TV shows. So way back then, I would just watch it for the hell of it. It was fun. So, (laughs) you know, especially with Signs, I didn't realize that that was one of his movies and I really enjoyed Signs. Um, And I enjoyed it even more after watching things like uh, Scary Movie, which was a spoof on other movies. And I can't remember which number scary movie it was, but they did do a spoof on signs. And I'm like, oh, shit, you know, this this is cool. You know, imitation is the fondest form of flattery and all that good shit. But that being said, The Sixth Sense is a movie that has a very near and dear and special place to my. Well, it's it's just it makes me feel nostalgic. (laughs) And I uh, looking over these next couple episodes, I was like. Doing the kind of research and digging up and watching movies and stuff, I'm like, man, M. Night has really been a part of my life for a while now. And um, he is an um, Indian man. He, uh, like I said, was born in Mahi, I hope I said that correctly, and raised in Pennsylvania. And I just, I'm not an um, immigrant. I'm not the child of an immigrant. So my lived in experience, of course, will be entirely different from someone who is. But I do like watching him in interviews and listening to him and even addressing some of his films that didn't do so well and then things that are now and just his process and him showing up in some of his films. It's like, I, I really enjoy seeing that in the way that I like seeing, you know, um, uh, uh, other other people who are in the spotlight, like uh, I think Jesus and Mero, they are. Oh, and I hope I'm saying it correctly. I think they're first generation Americans, where their parents were immigrants, and then they are. Yeah, I think that's it. If I said it wrong, correct me in the comments and on Twitter. Carefree Blurred used the hashtag CBN Pod. Uh, but yeah, but that's a little bit of my history with M Night and. I don't know, it's like discovering an old friend or seeing something that was right there in front of you all along. But uh, all in all, I've enjoyed his work, the work that I've seen, in The Sixth Sense especially. And so now that we have Glass coming down the pipeline like in a matter of weeks, it was very exciting to kind of take a look back at not only the East Rail 177 trilogy, but the other films in his filmography that I didn't realize were his films. <laughs> 
So with that being said, we're going to take a quick little break and then get uh, right back in to the meat of the episode. Mr. Price, can we talk about the note that you left on my car? I've studied the form of comics intimately. I spent a third of my life in a hospital bed with nothing else to do but read. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. The Egyptians drew on walls. Countries all over the world still pass on knowledge through pictorial forms. I believe comics are a form of history that someone somewhere felt or experienced. Then, of course, those experiences and that history got chewed up in the commercial machine, got jazzed up, made titillating cartoon for the sale rack. The city has seen its share of disasters. I watched the aftermath of that plane crash. I watched the carnage of the hotel fire. I watched the news, waiting to hear a very specific combination of words, but they never came. Then one day, I saw a news story about a train accident. And I heard them. There is a sole survivor, and he is miraculously unharmed. I have something called osteogenesis imperfecta. It's a genetic disorder. I don't make a particular protein very well, and it makes my bones very low in density, very easy to break. I've had 54 breaks in my life, and I have the tamest version of this disorder, type 1. There are type 2, type 3, type 4. Type 4s don't last very long. So that's how it popped into my head. If there is someone like me in the world, and I'm at one end of the spectrum, couldn't there be someone else, the opposite of me at the other end? Someone who doesn't get sick, who doesn't get hurt like the rest of us. And he probably doesn't even know it. The kind of person these stories are about a person put here to protect the rest of us, to guard us. All right, now Unbreakable was released in November, I believe the 22nd of 2000. Now this movie received positive reviews with critics. They were praising the aesthetics, the performance, and the score, this score was by a Mr. James Newton Howard. Now, the film gained a strong cult following, but a lot of that happened after the movie, like after 2000, like way after. Uh, many regard this film as one of uh, M. Night's best films. I believe back in 2011, Time listed the film as one of the top 10 superhero movies of all time. I'd be interested to know if you guys agree. Um, if so, please use the hashtag CBN pod and talk to me. Let me know. Do you think that Unbreakable, for those of you who've seen it, is one of the top 10, if not top, you know, five, I guess, superhero films of all time? And if you don't think so, let me know what you think is in your maybe say top three, four or five. Um, does Meteor Man pop up? Does Blank Man <laughs> pop up? Like, let me know what you think. And for those of you who haven't seen Unbreakable, there will be spoilers for Unbreakable in this episode. But please go and check it out. It's a really interesting movie. And I do like what M. Night has done with this film and with this series. Or else I wouldn't be covering it. <laughs> now, Unbreakable is a American superhero thriller. It was, of course, written and produced by M. Night Shyamalan starring... 
Bruce Willis, Samuel Jackson, and a few others, uh, Robin Wright, Spencer Treat Clark. Um, now, in this film, a security guard named David Dunn survives a horrific train crash. After the crash, with the help of a disabled comic book owner named Elijah Price, Dunn learns that he possesses superhuman powers. As Dunn explores and reluctantly confronts his powers while trying to navigate a difficult family life, he begins to fight crime and learn the true nature of Elijah Price. Now, looking at Unbreakable being a 2000, so let's say it was filmed in 1999, trying to recall where Blade falls in all this. I think Blade was a 97 or a 98. With Blade, the grandfather of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, off the table, <laughs> I think this was one of the first superhero movies. I remember as a kid being a fan of comics, reading comics, watching the Saturday morning cartoons, etc., etc., but... I know when I watched this film, I, it was confusing to me because it felt like a comic book movie. It put me in the same mind frame that I had when I read comics, and I knew it was a very familiar feeling. I know for a fact back then I did not have the words or uh, maybe not the words. I couldn't put into words rather that this being a comic book movie. I knew that Elijah Price had a comic book shop and he was really into books and all that. But as far as the movie itself, it, it felt like a very adult movie. It didn't feel like it was a comic book film in the traditional sense or what we think of comic book films now. Um, I just remember f feeling a ways about this movie and not being able to put that into words, which must mean that M. Night did a damn good job. You know, though I was a kid back then, you still did a very good job at kind of getting that feeling across that familiar feeling but eh, i don't know you be the judge let me know what you guys think of unbreakable now um the year was 2000 and m night Shyamalan was about to release his highly anticipated follow-up to the mega hit the sixth sense the movie called unbreakable this reunited the director with his star bruce willis and took a realistic grounded approach to a topic Shyamalan held near and dear to his heart, comic books. Now, I've gotten all this from io9, and I thought it was very interesting, this uh, kind of, not necessarily interview, but this write-up that they did about M. Night and Unbreakable from way back in the day. Uh, it reads, However, the company released the film, Touchstone Pictures, a division of Walt Disney Company, i.e. Marvel, did not want to make that obvious that this was a comic book film. Here's an excerpt from a Rolling Stone profile on Shyamalan, recounting a story that has been told many times in the past, but in case you haven't heard it, it is worth sharing again. Now, these are the words of M. Night himself. Uh, no, I'm sorry. This is the uh, interview with M. Night. Now, Rolling Stone article says uh, M. Night wanted to market the follow-up Unbreakable as the comic book movie it actually was only to be told that superhero movies had only niche appeal. Instead, it was pushed as another spooky thriller. This is just a bunch of people that go to conventions, he recalls being told by executives at Disney, of all places, <laughs> still years away from buying Marvel. And you're going to alienate everyone in this room if you use those words. Which I think speaks to what I just said before. As a kid watching this film, there was something very familiar about it. Even without the Elijah Price um, comic book scenes, there was something very familiar about it. But it was something very 
off about it to me. And I think it's ramping up and marketing it as a spooky thriller movie as opposed to the comic book movie it truly was. But that may be the thing that had worked in his favor because it's, I I know I can't be the only one out here, (coughs) excuse me, who wasn't aware that this was a traditional like comic book movie. But if I was, you know, whatever, shame on me, I was a kid. But I think that probably worked to its benefit because we do have movies like, like even, mm, I can't really say Blade. Blade was a really good movie. We knew it was a Marvel film. Back then it was a vampire movie. Uh, We had had several of those, but not one to this degree. And back then I wasn't aware of Blade being a comic book character uh, because I was into the X-Men and into the, you know, Superman, Batman of it all. I I wasn't aware until I discovered that later on. So I'm thinking when you hold this movie up next to, let's say, the first X-Men film and even I would say Iron Man back in 2008, just because that was the first of the MC. Well, even Hulk, I'll say Hulk. When you hold this film up to those, it it works in a way that. I think the Marvel Netflix shows are supposed to work. If that makes sense, I'm going to try this again. M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable as a comic book movie and property works in a way that the Marvel Netflix shows should work, uh, but they do not. They are the grounded, gritty, you know, boots on the ground shows, but they don't read the same as this movie did. I think if we were to put any of those uh, Netflix shows into this universe, maybe the Punisher, maybe because that was a more grounded show. I think what I'm trying to get at is that unbreakable much like kind of with Punisher is that the story was more the forefront and the supernatural of it all was an accessory. And uh, I don't know. I, I think I think that's what I'm getting. At. I'm, I'm going to settle with that. <laughs> if you agree, please tweet me carefree blurred at CBN Pod and let me know if you disagree. I'd like to know that as well. Now, funny thing though that Disney back then had wanted nothing to do with the comic book niche of it all. Now I was very young back then, so I didn't have the awareness that I have now about comics and the industry and whatnot. So honestly, if someone's out there and they're say older than me or my what well, age doesn't matter. If you were just more aware back then about the going ons with like how comic book movies were received and how people who read comic book were received on a larger scale, uh, kind of talk to me. I'd like to know your thoughts because for me, it's always been, this is something I enjoy. So this is what it is. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we're going to get into the character of, uh, David. Now, David Dunn was played by Bruce Willis. And prior to kind of going into David's story, I want to throw out a little bit of science. (laughs) Now, LRP5, LRP5, LRP5 is low density lipoprotein receptor related protein 5. This is a protein that in humans is encoded in the, by the, excuse me, LRP5 gene. LRP5 is a key component of the LRP5, LRP6 frizzled. Mm. This is the co-receptor group that is involved in the canonical WNT WNT pathway. Uh, WNT pathways are groups of signal transduction pathways which begin with proteins 
that pass signals into cells through cell surface receptors. WINT is an acronym in the field of genetics that stands for wingless integrated. Now the WINT pathway, the mutations in LRP5 can lead to considerable changes in bone mass. A loss of function mutation causes osteoporosis, pseudodoglomo, I believe I said that right, but that word means a decrease in bone mass. While a gain of function mutation causes drastic increase in bone mass. So pretty much from all of that that I've kind of read off to you because I'm not science. (laughs) Uh, LRP5 relates to the loss or the gain of uh, or the mutated loss or gain of bone mass. So kind of keep that in mind there. So we're going to move on to David because though this is the East Rail 177 trilogy series, it is essentially covering David Dunn and a few others. Um, so David Dunn, he's a fictional character in this unbreakable franchise portrayed by actor Bruce Willis. Dunn is a former college football prodigy who uh, in the first movie, Unbreakable, is a security guard with supernatural abilities. Now, David Dunn was a football prodigy sought out by professional teams, but later in life, he finds himself in a dying marriage, which is, oh God, a dying marriage with his college sweetheart, Audrey, much to the distress of their son, Joseph, and working as a security guard at a football stadium. As he returns home from an unsuccessful job interview in New York City, and well, we I have to point out that he is in Philadelphia because a lot of him... M. Night Shyamalan's films and properties are in Philadelphia. He is a Philly boy, true and true. (laughs) So um, David Dunn comes from an unsuccessful job interview in New York City. David's train crashes, killing the other 131 passengers while he is the only survivor, sustaining no injuries. What the hell? (laughs) So David Dunn is his real name. He goes by um, the Unbreakable Man or the Overseer. He is a superhumanly enhanced human. He is an American. He is a male. The age of 58. Uh, David Dunn's birthday is March 19th of 1960. His status is alive. (laughs) Now, early life. David Dunn's early life. He was born in Philadelphia in 1960. Now, little was known about his past, except that he also he almost died drowning in a pool at his school. Since the incident, safety precautions around the school's pool area were put in place. But of course, it's like that should have been done beforehand. This is, of course, a child at a school in a pool. <laughs> like, why don't you have those in place to begin with? Um, now, as a result of the trauma he endured, David became very scared of water. He developed a phobia. Now, when he reached the age of 20, Dunn pursued a career as an aspiring football player at the Philadelphia University. But what could have been a promising career quickly died after a near-fatal car accident involving his girlfriend and future wife, Audrey. Now, although no one knew that he was uninjured, he used this as an opportunity to give up football so that he could be with Audrey since she hated the sport. Now, that's, again, one of the things that makes this movie so good. You have it grounded in reality in a way that most comic books 
kind of are. I mean, there's the supernatural, fantastic soap opera of it all. But when you boil everything, scale everything back, you usually get a very simple story that's elaborate through all the trappings that you've put on it. Um, I did like this kind of origin of David Dunn. He was my Luke Cage before I knew who Luke Cage was. Um, in a sense, and kind of sort of my Rogue, though I knew who Rogue was back then, but we'll get to the reasons why a little bit later. Now, doing giving this up for love and then finding yourself in a slowly dying marriage, it has to be a terrible, terrible feeling. Now, David Dunn, let me see, we'll get into, hmm, I'll say his personality. Now, David is kind of something to keep in mind throughout this lesson. He's a fairly stoic and serious-minded person. Um, he also loves his family very much, not wanting his strange powers to interfere with their lives. Despite this, David, at the same time, also has a strong sense of responsibility and justice, causing him to decide to use his powers to help people despite his desire to keep himself and his family safe. Now, I think of him, though I've seen the film, listening to that kind of description of him, I see David as this just silent grandpa type. Like, <laughs> I know my papa is like a, just the, <laughs> sit back in the recliner, smile at you, talk, say whatever, but for the most part, leave him alone, let him eat his food, drink his beer, watch his shows, and call it a day. And that's kind of the, the feeling I get from him. He's like pre- granddad he's that i'm still out working and doing my thing eventually i'll evolve to the recliner granddad. <laughs> that's the way i've seen i see david now um moving on audrey and david they were married for years um they had a son named joseph now dunn makes his living as a security guard at the stadium which he used to play and that's another thing. So you've given up your career for the love, and then ultimately that's kind of dying. And then you take a job at the stadium where you used to play, where you could have been this big name. Uh, it's, I don't know if he's running from his past or trying to keep it just close enough in arm's reach or what, because you can be a security guard anywhere. Like, why would you choose to be a security guard at the very place you could have made it big? And that being said, I don't know if it has ever been discussed, but David's David's desire for fame or for more. Like, yes, he gave up this career for his wife, but I don't know that has ever explicitly been uh, kind of uh, told to the audience that this is something he truly wanted. He wanted to be famous. He, like, of course you wanted it because you were good at it, but... It, it, I, I can't recall there being this heavy because of the way that he is this stoic person. I don't see him being so passionate and so extreme and boisterous about this. If that's making any sense. <laughs> now, little is known as to why he took this job at the stadium, which I just feel like you want to be close to what could have been, but David and Audrey's relationship has strained to the point where they sleep in separate bedrooms. At one point of this struggle, Dunn decides to go to New York to apply for a better job. 
Enter the accident. <laughs> On a ride back home to Philadelphia, David is caught in a train wreck that has killed 131 passengers. Not only is he the sole survivor, but he hasn't broken one bone, hasn't had one scratch on him. Now, he reunites with Audrey and Joseph as they, among so many other families of the victims, wait at, for the wait for him at the hospital. <laughs> he later attended a morning service for the 131. After the service, Dunn finds a card on the windshield of his car with the words limited edition. Now, engraved on the front of that car was the words limited edition, which again ties really heavily into the comic book of it all. It's subtle, but it's there. We all know what a limited edition is. <laughs> now, David flips the card, uh, which in black marker, and it says, how many days have you been sick? Which, again, I really enjoyed this movie. As a kid, I freaking loved it. As an adult, I still find it to be a very good movie. A lot of times you look at things from your childhood and you see, well, did this age well? Was this okay? Was this this or was this that or whatever? I think this film did age well. The technology is a bit dated, uh, even the clothing or whatnot. But that aside, I think this was a really good movie. Um, but also within the East Rail 177 trilogy, it being dated is a thing that works in its favor because we have spoiler alert in the next film jumped ahead 16 years 16 yeah 16 years from the first film so though they were so far apart the the time in which has passed from 2000 to 2016 is significant in the movie split like so yeah it's all that being said, it aged well, and even if it didn't, that still would work in its favor, I feel. Now, at first, after receiving the card, David asks around in his workplace, and then Audrey, he asks him the very same question. Uh, nobody can ever recall him, David, ever being sick. Now, David takes his son, Joseph, to the limited edition comic book art museum. <laughs> this is where he meets the man responsible for the card, enter Elijah Price. Now, Elijah explains his disease known as osteogenesis imperfecta. This is the disease that Elijah has. It's osteogenesis imperfecta type 1, which means that his bones are very frail and easily breakable. Price theorizes that if there was someone like him in the world, then there has to be somebody who is the very opposite of him. Uh, he goes on to explain this, that he's seen the city's disasters ranging from a plane crash and a hotel fire. Price was looking for keywords that would help him find what he's looking for. When Price heard about the train crash and he heard the words soul survivor, he believed that he's found the man he was looking for. That is a lot of shit. That is heavy as hell. Like not only. So let's again take an inventory of what's going on. David has lost his career, you know, for his love, his wife, and then still lost his, losing, slowly losing his marriage. You have a beautiful baby boy, so that's great, but, you know, you lost a lot. Then you take a job as security at the very stadium that you would have been playing had you become famous, a famous football player. And then you get into a terrible car crash, car crash, excuse me, train crash after, uh, going to an interview for a job that you did not get. And then you're the sole survivor. So all of this shit weighing heavily on his shoulders and his mind. Then you meet a motherfucker who is essentially telling you that 
you're fulfilling a prophecy or that you're, you know, limited edition, one of two or like you're getting all of this shit on top. Like David probably needs a bit of therapy. And it just, that's what it seems like to me. Now, soul survivor being the key word, it's almost scary enough considering David has not until this point recognized that he's never been sick. He hasn't recognized that, you know, he's never broken a bone, never had a scratch. He's, he hasn't recognized this until now. David is 58. So again, going through your whole life, kind of oblivious to these things and then being hit or inundated with all of this stuff back to back. It's, oh God, I can only imagine how odd and stressful that must be. <laughs> now, with him again being the sole survivor, this kind of interests David at first. He's like, okay, this is something I can kind of get behind. But then Price mentions that he um, accuses, excuse me, he accuses Price of being a, a scam artist because Price mentioned to him that he could be a modern day superhero, someone who all these comic books themselves are based on, which I think I'll go a bit further. Um, David then leaves Joseph to go home. At home, Audrey tells David that she believes that it is a miracle that he survived the train and she wishes they could start over even going so far as to ask him out on a date. Okay. I think this is kind of a sign of the times of where we are with comic books and with geek culture and all that good stuff way back then. Because I look at this movie and I think of what if Elijah didn't work at a comic book shop? What if it was a fortune teller shop or it was just a jewelry shop or something that didn't have this whole geek nerdy um, history attached to it? Elijah would still be saying the same things that would still probably come off a bit odd or creepy or whatever, but I don't think it would have the same weight or the same reception if he wasn't in a comic book space because comic books are seen as these childish things or these things that are meant for children and these fantastic stories, which is what Elijah is essentially giving David is a fantastic story. And then when it's something that's, directly about you you being david it's a lot to to wrap your head around um and i think that that also goes with the quote earlier from the rolling stone article where disney was like yeah you can make this movie but don't use the words comic book at all and it's like that is exactly what this is so in order for it to be palatable for people to accept it you're saying do not market it as what it is find a different angle. And I think that's something that would have probably worked in Elijah's favor. If he had found a different angle, if it wasn't the comic book angle, there's something there, there's layers. I don't know how to unpack all of it, but I know I see it. (laughs) And you listening, if you know, and you see it, tweet me CBN pod and let me know. Cause there's something going on there that in the public consciousness, comic book was a scarlet letter. Like, because it's, it's being acted out in this movie, that being this scarlet letter. Now, David and Audrey, you know, trying to get it together and all that, which has to be something, it feels good, it feels promising. My marriage may be back on track yet. Um, so after she, she being Audrey, uh, invites him on that date, one day at work, David gets a call that someone is trying to get into the stadium on a bogus ticket. He goes to see the person, and the person reveals himself to be Elijah, of course. 
Um, who finds it strange that a person that doesn't think he is a superhero takes a job that requires him to protect people, which could also speak to the larger kind of trauma that David has been through. You know, you come out of all of this unscathed. And when I say all of this, I mean life. You're 58, kid, wife, failing, kind of sort of failing marriage, a train accident, and history of or no history of aches and pains and bruises. Again, I I, I get it. I get Elijah's point of view because it's almost like um, David is is Superman um, in a sense. You're this unbreakable man. Um, It could be a subconscious thing where it's like, okay, I've throughout all of the things I've been through. I see that I'm able to handle this burden. Why not take a job like this? You know, so um, kudos to you, Elijah. Now, David gets him a seat, him being Elijah. At the game, and along the way, he gets a vision of a man with a camouflage jacket was carrying a silver gun with a black grip. Now, although David's vision was accurate, later confirmed by Elijah, it doesn't help shake his skepticism. Like, I'm not a fucking superhero, which is like, how much more do you need? But, you know, there is deja vu. There are premonitions. People do see things that eventually come to be and so whatever, you know. So I'm with David on that one. Give me more. Now, David returns home from work to a workout with Joseph. He's helping him with the weights. And this is that famous scene where David is laying on his back on, you know, bench pressing some some weights. And Joseph is just adding weight after weight after weight. And though David is, I don't want to say struggling, though David has is clearly being challenged, I'll say that. The level of stress or resistance that David has throughout the scene is exactly the same. And I think that's significant because though at this point we're still thinking maybe he's human, maybe he's not, maybe you could have a little bit of something going on. If you're stressing by bench pressing 200 pounds, okay, cool. But then if you have the same exact level of stress to say four, five, or 600 pounds, then there's something there, you know, I, again, watching it as a kid being like, damn, and not understanding fully what I was looking at, but understanding what I was looking at, if that makes sense. Now, if there is anything that makes this a superhero origin story, it's, this is one of those things. Throughout watching Unbreakable and throughout watching subsequent films, I can see the layout. Because comic books are just like, uh, what is it, storyboards for movies and TV shows and such. But I could see this. And ah, I could just see these scenes drawn by some of my favorite artists and and colors and letterers. It's just, ah, I just, good, good, good stuff. Now, this is where they discover that David has limitless strength. Limitless strength. Now, Dunn later tries to test Price's theory when he gets a vision that one of the customers uh, is selling drugs. Now, after searching the man and finding nothing, David begins to doubt himself. Uh, David then gets a call from Joseph's school that he got hurt fighting defending a girl. While in the office, the principal remembers Dunn from back when he was uh, when when she was excuse me when she was the school nurse. She reminds David of the time that he almost died in the swimming pool, which answers Elijah's sick question. 
Now, back home, Audrey tells David that Elijah has been stalking her, telling her his theory. Before he can react, Joseph enters the room with his gun, intending to shoot David to prove he is a superhero. This is another one of those scenes. This is a good-ass movie. Um, this is another scene where I saw it, and I don't think I can recall my reaction. I think I may have been a bit shocked. But seeing Joseph with that gun and saying, oh, he's a superhero, mom, he's a superhero, I'm, I'll just... What he say? I'm gonna. I'll just shoot you once, or I'll just shoot you in the arm, or something. And the mom, like stressing, it's like knowing going into it that this is a superhero film, and then seeing these scenes play out. It's like, what did you expect? Like I didn't. Hmm, let me see. I didn't expect for Joseph to have the gun, but it's also like this kind of the escalation of like just how David is trying to figure out, go through these different things to test himself to see if he's a superhero. Joseph would, of course, want to do the same. Like, who wouldn't be excited to wake up as a kid and know that your mom is Storm or your dad is a bishop, you know, or, you know, your grandpa is Cyclops or something extreme like that? Like, yeah, we'd like to test that. If you're superhuman strong, lift these weights. If you're invulnerable, let me stab you. Like, just it as a kid, I'm sure I was like not too happy with Joseph. But as an adult watching, it's like, yeah, I. I can see that. Like, yeah, you you, and then this man, Mr. Price, has me so convinced that my dad is a superhero. Why not test the theory? Uh, but that was a very intense scene. And that was some shit, boy. So uh, Joseph got that gun. Everybody's screaming, <laughs> trying to calm him down. Now David uh, convinces Joseph not to shoot. He threatened to leave and go to New York. And that, oh man, so even Joseph dealing with the stress of like getting into these fights, being this small kid, parents going through a divorce, not wanting them to split up, and then finding out your dad may be a superhero. It's like, whew, ooh, Chile, it is a lot going on. <laughs> man. Now, before leaving, David warns him to stay away from his family, talking about Elijah. Because Dunn confronted him and tells him that he has been sick from drowning, which almost drowning isn't being sick. It's almost drowning. <clears throat> Before leaving, David, of course, warned him, Elijah, stay the fuck away from my family. Now, after his date with Audrey, he gets a message from Price stating that every hero has a weakness. And David's is water. David later goes on to the train yard to see the remains of his train and the accident. He looks and sees a big hole where his window seat used to be. David later remembers the car accident where he was able to rip off the door to save Audrey's life while she was, you know, in the fucking car. <laughs> David later calls Elijah asking for advice. Elijah tells him to go where people are and that the rest is up to him. Now, this is when he dons his cape, his pretty much his like poncho. <laughs> David goes to the subway train where he reaches out, making sure everyone touches him. He sees visions of the woman stealing in a, excuse me, in red stealing, a man in yellow assaulting an interracial couple, a date rapist, a man in orange invading a family's house. Now Dunn follows this man to the house using his rain poncho as a disguise. While sneaking up, he notices the man of the house dead and that the two children are tied up. This was another scene that was just good as hell like man this movie oh god so pretty much david whoops this man's ass um it, it kills him okay he kills him now 
while sneaking in, he noticed that the men in the house was dead. Two, t- two children were tied up. David unties the kids, goes to the master bedroom where the mother is tied to a radiator. He looks around the room for the orange man, sneaks up behind him, knocks him out the window. David lands in a pool where he nearly drowns, but the kids who he un- untied earlier saved his life. David later goes back, kills the man in orange by strangling him to death. Uh, when he unties the mother, she was already dead, which is like, oh, God. So, ugh, there are no no good deed goes unpunished, I guess. David then goes home and rests, not feeling well anymore. And the handshake. Now, the morning after, he secretly shows Joseph a newspaper of his night out, advising him never to tell Audrey. David later goes to limited edition during their exhibition where he meets Elijah. Elijah congratulates him on sight. Elijah then shakes his hand, giving David a vision of him, Elijah, being the cause of the disasters that were mentioned earlier. The train wreck, the hotel fire, and the plane crash. Like, god damn. Now, there are other several plans for explosives and other acts of terrorism around Elijah's room. Now, Elijah explains that there was meant to be a villain in David's story, and he adopts the name Mr. Glass. David immediately alerts the authorities, and Elijah is sent to an institution for the criminally insane. Uh, a big concern of mine with this piece of the story is that Mr. Glass is so sure that David's story needs a villain. Cool. Why is he centering David in these stories and not himself? Like, you could have easily... What's your origin story, Mr. Glass? You have all this shit going on. You become this whoever. Though you may be a villain, why is it not necessarily who's your arch nemesis? Well, maybe it is. Maybe it is. But it seemed like the story was was heavy on David and him having an origin story and him being the uh, the protagonist. But eh, I don't know. Um, so a quick rundown of David's powers. He has superhuman strength. David is extraordinarily strong. He has demonstrated that he could easily tear the car off the door of a car, bench press over 500 pounds. The more David believes in his strength, the stronger he becomes. An example of this, of course, is the workout scene. He was barely able to press the bar, but his son pretended to remove the weights, and David easily pressed it with little effort, which goes to faith over everything. <laughs> now, the upper limits of his strength were never accurately measured. Um, And 15 years later, it seems that David's strength is becoming dull, probably due to his age. Uh, But he's still able to manhandle a team of riot police, bend steel with his hands, and hold his own against the fight with the beast. He is invulnerable. Uh, David Dunn possesses an incredibly resilience to injury, and it's his primary and strongest superhuman ability. Uh, It's believed that he is virtually impossible to physically injure, His body is far more resistant to damage and stress than any other human. He has withstood physical traumas and shock that would have seriously injured or killed a normal human being. And his unique resilience also translates to granting him immunity to conventional diseases or viruses. He has never gotten sick or suffered from a common cold or ills probably because his body is simply too powerful to be affected in this fashion, which gives me a very Wolverine, Logan idea. (laughs) 
Now, security instinct. Now, this is kind of sort of psychic ability. David possesses an unknown and not clearly understood power to instinctively know if a person is good or evil. It is believed that this may be a form of psychometric power, some sort of heightened instinct that could possibly uh, employ unconsciously. So this could be something that just is constantly running in his mind, constantly. Um, If an evil person stood out to David, he could perceive that they are trying to hide something, that they are guilty of some crime. And under certain circumstances, usually if David made physical contact, i.e. rogue, with the person, um, he could know what they were thinking and their past evils. Now, this would be a wonderful comic book. Like, all we have all of Like, M. Night could easily have a comic book series that spans between 2000 and 2015. Between these two movies, you could have so many things going on. Like, fill in those gaps. Uh, his vulnerabilities, water. For some reason... Unknown reason David is extremely vulnerable to water, and it's probably the denseness of his bones, uh, possibly because of the differences in his body. Now, he cannot float, but he rather sinks as a result. So, yeah, motherfucker can't swim, you sink like a rock. Like, yeah, I'm sure he is afraid of water, uh, and that's also something that could just that could be explored in several arcs with a ongoing story that spans from 2000 to 2015. Like, hire me, M. Night Shyamalan. Hire me. I can write a good-ass story. Give me about 12 to 24 issues, and I, I can give you some good shit. Uh, I think this is a good film. I would want any and everyone to watch this film. This was... Um, it was very interesting revisiting this, of course, with the whole nostalgia of it all and knowing that Mr. Glass is coming up down the pipeline soon. Uh, that's the other thing. With Mr. Glass coming down the pipeline, I implore you to watch the East Rail 177 trilogy. Watch the first two parts, Unbreakable and Split, and talk with me. Use the hashtag CVMPod and let me know what you think. Are, are, do you enjoy this series? If you've seen it, what are some of your thoughts? And if you've seen it before, go back and watch it again. Like, this shit, it's, it's good. As a comic book fan, the representation isn't really there. How you guys know I like it, but all in all, M. Night is a man of color who is into comics and is making good ass films. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much it. All in all, I enjoy the movie. Uh, I enjoy learning more about the character, and it's a bit of a period piece. Like it's very much ninety nine two thousands in that film. So uh, let me know what you guys think. If you like the movie, if you didn't like it, uh, hit me up. <laughs> Carefree Blurred on Twitter. Uh, keep this conversation going. You can email me at carefreeblacknerd at gmail.com. Twitter is the most immediate way to get in touch with me. Carefree Blurred. Use that hashtag CBNPod. Um, all other social media sites, it's Carefree Black Nerd. And check me out on BYNK Radio. Check out the site. Take a look around. There are other podcasts on there as well. Government name, uh, social introvert, bomb ass shows. There's a lot of content, uh, a lot of bloggers and, and music. And if you're into hip hop and if you're into R&B and if you're into just music appreciation in general or want to hear more podcasts, check them out. Um, yeah. So keep this conversation going. Hit me up. Let's talk about some things. And uh, until next time, I want you all to stay carefree, stay nerdy, stay geeky. And uh, we out. This is one of Johan Davis's earliest drawings.
See the villain's eyes? They're larger than the other characters. They insinuate a slightly skewed perspective on how they see the world. Just off normal. Doesn't look scary. Mm -hmm, that's what I said to my son. But he says there's always two kinds. There's the soldier villain who fights the hero with his hands. And then there's the real threat, the brilliant and evil arch enemy who fights the hero with his mind. Are you Elijah's mother? I am. I'm helping him with the sale. Nice to meet you. I'm David Dunn. He's spoken of you. Says you're becoming friends. We are. Looks like he's doing good today. I'm very proud of him. He's come through a lot in his life. A couple of bad spills, I thought it broken him. Mm-hmm. They were bad. But he made it. Yes, he did. He's kind of a miracle. Yes, he is.